Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all on the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote-to-cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. Shazam! Jay Jacobs here, host of the Custom Manufacturing Podcast, The Job Shop Show. Today we are live with my good friend and the manufacturing genius of Rapid, Steve Lynch. Steve and I worked together at Rapid where he started as a sheet metal programmer in, was it 2003, Steve? Yep. We were around 10 people then, and he ended up as the director of technology with six software developers under him. Steve was critical to figuring out and implementing the technology that enabled us to grow on average over 32% between 2010 and 2017, and technology was absolutely a secret weapon of rapid as well as some other stuff we're going to get into that steve helped bring to the company that wasn't specifically technology i learned so much from him he always kept me on my toes we had a very open relationship and i gave steve permission to challenge me to question me which was sometimes hard for others at the company to comprehend and understand welcome to the job shop show steve Thanks a lot. This is awesome. What a moment. So at Rapid, you operated under a simple philosophy, the theory of constraints. Find the constraint and fix it. And I often equated this to the chain with the weak link and that if we were growing, we were always going to break a link because that's what happens as you just continually stretch and grow. So the theory of constraints, how you gain that philosophy came from book the goal can you just talk to us about the goal theory of constraints and how all that came about and how you implemented it and what you did day to day yeah the goal is like a really exciting book it's been around for a long time and there's a, a series that eli goldratt wrote and the one after the goal is it's not luck and that title really has always hit to me that there must be a method or a procedure to being successful and when you read this book, he outlines all these um, details and techniques about it. But the simple thing or the concept of it is quite simple, but actually implementing it and staying true to what it says is difficult. So you, you want to focus on the weakest link, which is obviously hard to measure. So you have to put as, as many metrics. Well, in place if you're as growing you fast, sometimes it's pretty obvious because <laughs> yeah. something breaks in the shop. We also had tons of metrics, though, too, and most shops don't that, that's, have that's the a, reports and that's insight a great, that we had. Yeah, so but we'll come back to metrics, but keep, keep, keep chugging there. So even at the early stages, I would put this into place at my personal position. I always wasn't a manager. Sometimes I was just a programmer, 
And I would look at what is the longest part or what is the hardest part of my task during my activities that I can improve on. And if I just focused on that task, you would actually become really in love with that problem and you'd love that problem. And it's hard to stop fixing that problem when it's not the problem anymore. And that's the trickiest part about the theory of constraints is that once it's not the weakest link anymore, move on and stop. And I don't think that's a lot of people grasp or understand. So how did you identify weak links beyond the fact that something just wasn't working? Can you give us an example? It's hard to give an example. And most of the time it was a gut reaction, but as our systems became more sophisticated, it was very easy working with Tom Persh, who was a metric master and yourself as well. Jay would always come to the table and go, I think it's this. And then Tom would prove it out through data. And it was <laughs> amazing. Cause Jay was like three weeks ahead of everyone, but we always did, you know, have the data behind what we thought was needed and we fit the solution to the problem rather than just saying we have this great solution, where else can we apply it? Talk a little bit about the metrics because that, as you said, wasn't something we always had, but we definitely made more progress once we started to define what was important and measure it. Can you remember any of the specific things that we measured? You were the one of the ones that I'm taking to my new company, which I just started was new customers. Like you wanted to see new customers per month and how many there were. And that was like the golden key, I believe, for really measuring your sales guy. If your sales guy's out there doing, you know, 40 hours a week, are, is that 40 hours a week really on new customers or is it on just catering to old customers? And I think your metric really pointed that weakness out. If I remember correctly, we needed to have at least 20% of the customers in the previous month be new customers, or I knew I was going to see a slowdown in sales growth in two to three months. But our business profile is so different than these manufacturing shops because we just we we were a job shop. Our shop needed thousands of jobs to run every week, whereas most shops need like twenty. So our metric would probably more overblown to the prototype and industry. But yes, like an exometry or someone out there, they need to have a massive sales force. And at the end, we had more salespeople than we did making parts, it seemed like. It was crazy. There was a whole room of salespeople and computers and <laughs> William with the IT. I mean, it was nuts. So getting back to the book, The Goal, can you describe it so somebody listening can get excited and want to read it? So the book, The Goal, is, a, is not a business book. It's not a boring book. It's written as like a story, and it's a great story. And throughout the, the, the book, you, they give multiple examples, but the easiest example is they're on a hike, and they have some overweight kid. I don't know what the political version of that is these days, but the slow <laughs> guy, you know, they're not all going to get up the mountain until the, until the slow guy gets up the mountain. So they, you know, they took his backpack off, and they catered, make sure – there's nothing in front of this guy to slow him down. And really anything that would stop him walking is what they clear out in front of them. And this would be like a forming department in your sheet metal shop. You always want to make sure that the forming department is never going to run out of parts to form. And you want to make sure that the forming department is not doing hardware or something stupid, like keep him forming. And that's what our main constraint at sheet metal was for a long time was our forming department. And we fix that through smart press breaks and advanced tooling and mm -hmm. software. I mean, right. I think one of the other 
points about the book, if I remember correctly, is it is a story. It is technically fiction, and it also related it to the personal aspect of one's life. And the main character in the book, I believe, had problems with his marriage, and he discovered the constraints in his marriage, or at least the constraints that were caused by him, and he fixed them. In all of these books, I really talk about this evaporating clouds mentality, which I think I've done naturally, but by being more aware of it, I can communicate in such a way that it really helps the other side, the person on the other side of the argument realize that there are common solutions to these things rather than I just want it my way to get to the end result. And the evaporating clouds is really something powerful. But when you look at it, it's so common Evaporating sense. clouds? Yep. And when you, when you read about it or understand it, it's like that is so simple. But what is it? It's like um, two people want to get to the same end result, but they have different ways to get there. And then you can show or communicate that there's other ways to get to the end result. Like you find common ground. Like we both want to grow the company. Mm-hmm. You want to do it through sales. I want to do it through technology. But as long as we grow the company and the end result, we can find common ground to get there. It reminds me of the pricing theory that you and I, I won't say necessarily disagreed upon, but we came at from different ways. And I always wanted to use the engineering approach and say, okay, we want to be really precise and understand the cost here, here, and here, and just build it all up granularly from the ground up, dial it in as specific as possible. And you had a different approach. Do you remember that? I think I do, but remind me. <laughs> just in case I get it wrong. Regarding it's better to be close than perfect? Oh, yes. But we were also in a prototype world where, you know, missing 35 cents on a piece of material isn't going to kill you as long as you get the quotes out in a very fast manner. It was about reaction time. All right. So much of the success of Rapid was the automation of what I called the rote. And at the end, you did have six software developers who worked underneath you. But in the beginning, you were a programmer. So how did you make that journey? How did you learn to program? What was the reason you decided to learn to program? Can you share some of that with the audience? Well, way back when, I was the only programmer at Rapid for a very long time, and I had to train everyone in there. But, like, we were working crazy hours. Like, at 11 o'clock, we were calling for pizza, so I'm working Mm -hmm. 70 hours a week. My hand actually gave out on me, and I literally – couldn't use my hand to click the mouse anymore which you wouldn't think like clicking a mouse is a lot of issue but it like burned it was on fire so then I used my left hand for a while and I and that was okay and then that started going at me so then you actually bought me a foot pedal on I remember I remember the foot pedal yeah I was like you want a freaking foot pedal this is stupid but I was like I gotta get the workout you know so I used that and then we actually hired um, someone called Brad Christie who was amazing he showed me a whole nother world of you know, computer science and macros and just sucked a lot of knowledge off of him. And then Mike Moore came on board and that was like amazing. This guy would just do magic. So let's talk though, the first step in you 
programming, if we want to call it programming, was the creation of macros, wasn't it? Yep, just very simple routines in a computer. So, and the goal of the macros was to have a program execute a bunch of consistent mouse clicks so that you did not have to use your hand, which was on fire, to, yeah. to click. So that's what, that's what you were trying to I solve. I all the buttons to press. I just couldn't press them. And I could, I, at the time, computers weren't as good as they were either. So I could actually move the mouse before the computer was ready and wait for the wait sign and hit the button like it was nuts. And how did that transition to actually computer programming for you? Once you get the concept of what a variable is and how to store it and how you can pull it back and read variables, it's not, yes, it becomes more complicated and there's databases, but there's simple parts of all of this that work the same. Yeah. So if you grab the concept, you can really do a lot. But these days, even with Visual Studio, half of it's auto-typed for you. Like it's not hard to be a computer programmer like mm. it used to be. So you say Visual Studio, what's that? Visual Studio is like a platform that makes it simpler for you to create programs in C-sharp. And what is C-sharp? C-sharp is a Microsoft computer language they came up with that goes on top of C, which is... So what are the types of things that you could program with this language? The most magical moment is just seeing a stupid message box comes up. You can type message box, you know, open, close parentheses, put something in there and the word shows up that you do in the message box. It's still like, I'm still a code today and I love it. Like, it's just fascinating to me that, you, you know, you can see behind why these computers work and it's really interesting. And many of the owners who are going to be listening don't have the desire or just I like used to always ask do you do you like computers and some people just don't like computers they use them because they have to but it's not a friendly uh, friendly relationship so if, if for someone who's not friendly with a computer how do they find the person in their company and then give them the opportunity to learn and, and take that first step? What would you do? What did you do? Well, I never learned a program. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have to. I had you guys. <laughs> did this. I think it's just inspiration and being a good leader and, you know. So are there websites though? How did you? Oh my God, you can Google Did you buy a book? Days. Did you buy a book? Did you watch YouTube videos? Did you? I did not do any of those things, but you can just Google what you want and it comes up like Stack Overflow and it's so easy these days. So how would you identify the person in your company who might have the aptitude to program who perhaps hasn't programmed before? I don't know because one of, one of the skills that I do have is finding someone's unique ability to, to do these things. And as a manager, you always find someone that wants to do that. And then if you find someone that wants to do that, you can either train him the normal job or, you know, give him the tools to make sure he's successful. Okay. Blocking out the time for him. So, you know, he has time to work on it each week. You also learned a lot outside of work hours. Yes. I am a workaholic, I think. But this stuff you, didn't happen overnight. Right. So you would go home and instead of working on your motorcycle 
or playing a video game, you learn how to program. Yep, I could sit there and watch TV or I could do this and I've always just wanted to create stuff. So before Rapid created eRapid, which is a plugin for SolidWorks, we tried to create a program that would be available to new part developers to automatically quote their sheet metal parts and allow them to order it. And we attempted to do that, I think, three different times, probably spent over a million dollars. Not on my project. Well, and then <laughs> you sort of took the bull by the horns and made it happen, made it happen in a way because we weren't originally going to have it work within SolidWorks. So you had the experience of working with outside software developers who created custom programs and you also, some were successful, some were not. You managed some, you saw some that I was trying to manage unsuccessfully. What are your thoughts on outside programmers, programming companies? How do they fit in? Where would you use one? Where do you have to be cautious? So the, the root cause for all this stuff is really communication. And I personally couldn't communicate the right way. Uh, Tom Purse came in and I was just upset and angry. And, you know, why aren't these guys listening to me? I know where all the problems are. And he gave me this book where I didn't even realize what I was reading for a while because he gave it to me and asked me to re read it. We went on some trip. And it's all about, like, just reporting the facts and taking your emotion out of it. And I got to the end of the book. I was like, this is crap. Why do you have me read this? But that book actually changed like almost everything and how I communicated what I want. And it helped me understand that the reason why you can't use outside software developers is because they're, they don't understand what you're trying to accomplish, even though you're, to you, it's very easy. Like you just want this part to flow over there and I want my mm -hmm. bend gains on it. But then to, to explain to someone what a bend gain is and have to like start over from the beginning is very frustrating. Like you're teaching, you have to tell someone in a way where you expect them to know it because they're a smart programmer, but they don't mm -hmm. know the actual mechanics of like the shop. So trying to use outside programming is not successful. And that's why I think the first two projects weren't successful. Do you recall the name of the book that Tom had you read? I don't. Right. I didn't like the book. I never liked the book, but the concepts <laughs> of it was really good. And it wasn't until halfway through the book. I said, like, why the hell is he having me read this? Oh, I probably just not communicating what I want to him. Well, we'll try and find that and we will make sure that we can get that uh, on the show notes for folks. As far as like my career, that was the biggest thing that broke through with my career was being able to take my emotion out of it and communicate exactly what I wanted to implement or put in place rather than just do this because, mm -hmm. and it's a big, it's a small change, but a big change. Yeah. So beyond technology and learning how to program, you also would jump into different parts of the company that needed fixing and help figure out a path forward. And specifically, we started in 2009, Rapid Machining. 
and you didn't really know anything about machining, but you helped us make that successful. So how did you go about learning about machining? A quick diversion first. Every time I hear rapid machine, I think of Rudy in the conference room going, I don't think there's that many people that want prototype parts. I just don't <laughs> see how this is going to work, Jay. This is nuts. We need long run parts. Like I always think of that too. It's so funny. So Rudy is Rudy Stahl, who was the owner of RS Machining, which was a small machine shop, which we bought. And Rudy was going to go into retirement and I convinced him to stay on board and get rapid machining started. I remember he told me later, he figured, okay, well, I'll just work for another year or two, take this guy's money and make it happen. Uh, and then I'll ride off into the sunset. And I, I think we gave him a, quite a ride, uh, ride off that he didn't anticipate. I, I remember he would had jobs on the whiteboard and we told him about our ERP system where he could manage his jobs. And no, 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 the whiteboard's always worked in the past and it'll, it'll work just fine. And a couple of weeks later, he's like, tell <laughs> me about the broken. CRP system. Yeah. <laughs> so the, and the reason I bring this up is there's many shops that it goes along to Steve's theory of constraints where a lot of time is taken doing something just because that was the way it's always been done. And someone either doesn't know about a technology that can simplify it or doesn't have the skill set to implement the technology. And this is way back again in 2009, but one of the simple things that I did, and it's not really technology, but Rudy would calculate by hand the prices. So if you wanted a different quantity, he had to go on paper with a pencil or pen and figure out the price. And I created a spreadsheet for him and allowed him to put in any quantity he wanted and obviously get an instant price. And his eyes just lit up. He was so happy and he had no idea that it was that simple to create a pricing spreadsheet. So I would encourage someone to look at what takes you a lot of time right now in your company and is it something that could be automated? Because that's really how we got started along that. But getting back to the machining, how did you learn about machining and what were the constraints in machining and how to take it from a traditional machine shop into the rapid way of doing things? So the machining adventure was really fun for me. I went over there. I was asked to go over there because it wasn't doing very well. Um, I didn't know that much about machining at all. So I just did what I normally do, which is sit in the cubicles next to the estimators, listen, ask questions, did my sample data. I found through the sample data that we were on the back end buying $1,200 tools for $600 parts. It's like, this has to stop. How come this is happening? brought that communication. It was all about communication back to the estimators. The estimators didn't even know about it. We brought awareness to it. We started good, bad, ugly. Mm -hmm. That was a great one by, by week. And we just kind of took case by case scenario down. And then we, once we had it kind of working, we then sped it up 
And that's literally what I've done every position I had to go to. And I think it's important that you had a willing partner in Rudy and that even though he had not been exposed to this and he'd operated under probably close to 40 years of how he machined parts, he was open to trying new things. And with his machining background and expertise, which was tremendous, the combination of the mentality, the mindset of quick turnaround, what you were able to bring to the table, and then how he knew it had to be integrated into the shop, how it had to be presented to the team was so powerful. That was awesome. That was a fun time. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about managing people because you had a unique style. You have a unique style. And I guess probably, let me ask you, how would you describe your style of managing people? So I'm doing it right now. I have a um, brand new shop. They opened up approved sheet metal. It's so much fun and I keep it fun. I'm a very positive person. I think it's less energy to be positive than it is negative. So we come in every day, we do our stand up. I talk to, to them. What about is the, a stand up? A stand up is about 10, 15 minutes where everyone's standing up and you talk about the company. It's very easy for us because we have so many things going on. Give them a status of the front office, what's changed, what's up. And it's great. And it's back to communication again. Like if you have good communication, everything else seems very simple and you're not surprising people. You can implement change because they know things are coming and it, just really being open and listening. And do you have standard things you talk about every day, metrics that you give them an update on? Not yet, but we're developing that. And I think that's the difference too, is I don't develop those. I kind of ask around. I let these guys participate in. You put guardrails on there. So it's not something stupid they don't want to hear about. Right. But the more people participating on something, they feel like they own it and they care more. And if you can bring that careness or that work, you know, you're, this is a team. You're part of this into that atmosphere. It's always been very successful for me. So you are speaking, even though it's your company and your team, you are speaking in front of a number of people. And I'm just curious how that feels now, because I remember way back, you did not like to speak in front of people. Yes, but you've sent me to so many presentations and SolidWorks meetings and so something that you, if you practice, you get good at it. So for an owner who is also uncomfortable. And you have a job shop show. <laughs> yeah. The, the way I learned to speak in front of people was starting way back in the early days of Rapid. I just thought it was important to communicate. So we had, say, 10 people at the beginning. And it's a lot easier to talk to 10 people than 25 people versus 50 people. But I, every month, got in front of the company and gave them an update. We didn't have the daily stand-ups at that point. We didn't know about those. But by doing that once a month and having my audience grow, I got very accustomed to talking in front of people. And when we added rapid machining, we had two company meetings a month. 
And then we added another machining division and a production sheet metal division. So at one point I was doing four company meetings a month. And then the whole idea is to build a team so that you can focus as an owner on the things that you are really good at that no one else can do. So we pushed to the people who ran each of the divisions, the company update. And I remember David Puglio, who ran the prototype sheet metal division, was so nervous the first time that he did it. And by this time, it was probably 75 people. But two years later, three years later, he was so comfortable. The first time he had a piece of paper and that he read almost everything off of it. And then two, three years later, almost all ad-libbed a couple notes here and there. And that's how you develop the ability to communicate. So a little bit of aside getting away from the management of people. So but. back to the management part of it, I, I think, do think it's unique. I, I hired a tire changer, a guy from the liquor store and a cook. Then these guys grew up to be team leaders at Rapid now, like just giving people opportunities, finding the guy that, you know, he can control coming in early. He can control staying late, he can control working on the weekends if he wants, hard work ethic. And the best accomplishment was everyone telling me you can't just train anyone anything. And I didn't train him. This individual did a lot by himself, but Hiro came from really, we had a video game out at, at, at Craigslist, which is amazing. If you like video games, come see us. And he showed up. We taught him how to program. He grew himself into the tooling department. Remember, mm -hmm. we had our yeah. own tooling department. Yeah. And he always wanted to be a computer programmer. It took about two years for him to make the leap because he was scared and he jumped into coding and he learned all, co now he can do databases and SQL commands and, you know, stored procedures. I mean, the guy's a killer. And this, you know, he did not go to school for this or anything. So you really can train not anyone, but the people that want to learn almost any skill set through repetition and Desire time. is yes. huge. And let's jump back though, specifically, we had a strategy. We were growing rapidly. <laughs> Every time we, we needed an engineer, I'd look at the shipping department and go, who's down there? <laughs> so we came up though with a strategy. We would put an ad in Craigslist and other places, but Craigslist seemed to work and like to play video games, come apply for a job at Rapid Sheet Metal. And why that? Well, the operating the CAD system was a lot like playing a video game. And a lot of people don't want to sit down all day. Like that's a whole skill set in itself and stay still right. and gamers, focused. Gamers yeah. are, yeah. They're so lazy. You had to, you had to, no, they, they look at the world a different way. But They're, They don't like exercise. I'm a sitter. I know this. <laughs> I like to sit. Danielle, my wife, she works out three times a day. I'll sit there I, and watch I her. I still remember though, some of the blurry eyed folks coming in the morning after a new game came out because they were standing in line till midnight to get it. And then they came, went home and played it until three or 4 a.m., got a couple hours sleep and came in. But those are the sacrifices you made. But what we would do is we would hire two or three estimators or people who we wanted to become estimators at a time. And what would we pay them? It was pretty, pretty small. 12. $12 an hour, say. And we 
assumed that maybe one out of the two, one out of the three would make it. Sometimes none of them would, sometimes all of them. But it was a way to bring people in, give but them a, a shot. But there's a process behind this too that we have. Talk you about know, that. So the, the, the process is all the training materials I put in place. The people that I did train, if they couldn't train someone else, then they didn't know it. So, I mean, this is all handed down layers on layers that made it successful. You also kept the team very motivated. And you talk about some of the techniques that you use, because some of them were pretty conscious. Maybe others were not so conscious. So I like air horns. I like loud noises. I'm high energy. And, you know, I just come in every morning with a great attitude, compliments. And it, it's really that simple. I enjoy what I did every day. And I I'll think say, they felt that. Right. So you would, and I saw this, you would come in, you'd say hi to everybody, you'd high five people. You definitely brought a lot of energy into the room. And that was deliberate, wasn't it? You have to, yeah. yeah. You also... And the days I didn't, you could see the mood change. Because, you know, you can't be happy every day or things right. did go wrong. We had our tough times. Mm -hmm. Sure. Talk about how you gamified it too. So, yes, I worked on the floor. I actually took the journey I just completed from deburring the shop owner, which I love. So I've seen all stages of this. And if I was in the deburring department, I could go down there, I could kick butt one day, get out five million parts. The next day I could get out two and there's really no difference because you know it's all about how long I'm trapped in the shop and that's my paycheck. So I couldn't ever change the, the pay for the people that I worked for, but what I could do is make them aware that, I, that we were cognizant of how much work they put out when they hit new records or if they did a five-part assembly the first time or if they programmed a 20-part assembly first time. So we always put in levels. You're level one, level two, or level three. Jay would sign the contract or the award. There will be a plaque and each level got higher. But when these guys got, there was no mon monetary value to that. It was literally just, here's your skill set. Here's your acknowledgement. We appreciate you working hard for this. And it was a celebration moment. And I think it's important, though, that we had formal criteria for each level. Yes. And that we gave them something physical that they could display. That certificate, they, it was displayed in everyone's cube. When you walked by, you knew they were a level two now. And that is so important to making someone feel good about what they are doing, that they've accomplished something and it's that, being recognized. Yeah, the, the, the company is actually looking at what they do and they're contributing. People want to contribute to something. And, you know, you can have a superstar with, that gets no attention. He's not going to be there very long. Right. So you also like to, particularly with your software dev team, have events to well, I got a little, I, I got a little out of control when I could put sound effects on things, and it sounded like a casino one time when you walked in there because it was all sorts of bells and whistles and things going off for certain events. So that we had to tune back down. But 
I still like a good moderate mix of those things. Or if you kick off a new order, you had us do the gong. Mm-hmm. You know, these, these things during the day, they're just fun activities. Yeah, I remember we had a, if, you, if we got an order over a certain sales level, it was a physical gong. And I'd go out and I'd bang the hell out of that thing. And you guys moved it out of the <laughs> out into the shop because I was driving you nuts. But the, but the other thing too, is you did offsite stuff too for team building. Yep. Talk, talk a little bit about that. Well, we went golfing, which I, I learned through the development team and a bunch of developers out there golfing is pretty funny to watch. I'll tell you that we weren't very good, but we had a blast doing it. You know, we did a bunch of local events and I let these guys kind of pick as well too. And then you set a goal to it, whether it's a new release or, you know, a certain report or things like that. So we are always working towards something. You want to set some goal that you're working towards. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, ideas without goals is really just dreams. And that's something else you could taught me. And I think the one thing you've always taught me, there's people that can dream it, people that can make it, people that can repeat. I do think I'm in between the dream and make it. And I just love getting things done a lot, but I like coming up with new ideas too. So it's tough. So the, what Steve's referring to is actually from strategic coach and Dan Sullivan. The, some people who make it up, some people who make it real and some people who make it recur and all, you can do all three and you probably do all three, but there's one that is probably the focus of what your efforts are. I also think that going back to these events and obviously they cost a little bit of money, but they don't cost a lot of money. And the morale, the team would do whatever it took at, at the right times. And part of that was the building of the team in the times when it wasn't tough. You don't have to be working 110% all the time. So that was... And that was really your initiative, Steve. Yeah. Because I'm not a golfer. I was never going to be golfing. <laughs> so I, I did listen to Tom's interview in preparation, and he has some rules. And most of these rules I got from Tom, but vision and wants without goals are just dreams, like I said. Mm-hmm. Always volunteer. Like, honestly, like this is how I learned how to program and how I've always kind of jumped up the next tier, climbed the ladder. I never had all these skill sets. But so you- talk about that one because – not just yourself. I saw that with other people at Rapid and we gave them the opportunity. So say that again, it, it, volunteer, talk, talk about that. Yeah. You always volunteer. And, and, you know, Jay was a great owner where he created an environment where we needed everything all at once. So like the more people that knew a skill set was better. And as a business owner, you look at things different. Like you want as a manager, you don't want the people under you to kind of be as good as you, but as a business owner, you want everyone to be the best. And there's a lot of people out there that I've seen come in or in my past where want they do more effort than keeping you down rather than letting you use SolidWorks or letting you understand how the programming apps work. So you did a great job of having an environment that was like that. You never get what you don't ask for. I'm very good at asking for things. I ask my customers now. I ask you. I've always kind of laid out what my goal is because I always have a goal and what I'm trying to do and then ask other people for help to get there. Mm-hmm. Don't operate angry. I've only seen Tom Persh angry once 
and it was really probably warranted, but at the same time, if you know him, he doesn't get angry very often. So, and it wasn't at me. <laughs> <laughs> That's, you didn't see me get angry often either, did you? A few times, but I think they were warranted. So the reason I bring that up is that anger can be a tool and it shouldn't be a tool you use very often, but if you don't use it very often, when you use it, it when means you more. use it, it means more and it can be quite effective, but it can't be out of control anger. And this may seem weird, but even though I was angry and exhibiting anger, I understood exactly what I was doing and I could have turned it off at the time. So I want to On Tuesday meetings, you came in, you set the law down a couple of times and it, it created a lot of reaction that was warranted and we steered the ship. It was definitely needed. Yes. Anger okay. is a tool and think about if you do get angry at people on your team, is, are you using it as a tool or is it just a emotional response that you are not really in control of? So another one, if it's not helping the bottom line or top line, stop, you're not doing the right work. That is another one where people fall in love with these problems and they're not really the great problems. Fail faster is really doesn't, when the first time you told me to fail faster, it kind of shocked me. <laughs> and I want you to explain this one more because this was a big one for me. Well, this is something that comes from the startup world, probably more out of Silicon Valley. But the idea is that it doesn't have to be perfect and let's have action rather than plan, plan, plan. So you want to try something. If it works, great. It's only a really a failure if you either don't win or don't learn something from it. So perhaps fail fast should be better phrased as learn fast, but get at it and try something move on and cut your losses like right. you, you know rather go quick or minimize your losses than hold on to a failing idea as well right and that the whole idea there is particularly in the software world don't try to build the perfect product for your customer without trying it and i think i'm trying to remember who it is out in silicon valley said if you're not embarrassed with your first release of software then you spent too much time and you released too late. Yeah. So in that, you really want to just place guardrails on people, coach them and trust that they have good intentions for the things they're trying. Very important. Enjoy the journey. I think that's just amazing. That one of our core values. Whether Robert. you're failing or doing good, you can have a good time doing it, which sounds <laughs> weird, but if you're failing, why be miserable and you're failing? Like, you know, Communication leads to alignment. Communication, again, I'll, I'll bring it back. It's just when people know what's coming and they're aware of what's going on, they, they understand your problems, 
they just, things just magically fall in line. People do want to help you. The people closest to the work have the answers. This is, I, I was thrown into a lot of different um, areas at the end. It was like more like a crisis management. Mm -hmm. And you go down to, to sheet metal and like, oh, what's the problem? You walk out to the shop floor and the answer's right there. Oh, I can't keep the laser running because I have to put the material away. Well, that's easy. I look like a hero now in my management meeting because we fixed it. Like these problems become so simple when you get down to who's actually doing the work. They have the answers. Yes. It takes teamwork as a it takes teamwork to work as a group towards a common goal. You can't do this yourself. You guys can't run a company that size yourself. You had techniques that would bring alignment and everyone working towards a common goal. And that's when things just really started happening at a rapid pace, hopefully. Mm -hmm. And that's all my things. But all those come down to what to change, what to change it to, and how to cause the change. And that's back to theory of constraints. Like, why do you want to change things? So I'm going to throw a word out that as I was thinking how to describe you from a management sense. <laughs> Wasn't and, always easy. Well, I'm going to, the word I came up with was maverick. And the way Tom Persh, Tom Persh ended up managing you at the end, but I was always involved with the projects and before he had the direct oversight of you was involved in, in working with you directly. So what I think the, the Maverick is the person who makes a difference, who creates the changes within the company that allow the company to go forward, comes up with the new ideas and pushes through opposition. And the, uh, it's tough on management because you created a lot of chaos. You upset the apple cart. You didn't necessarily respect the um, line of, chain of command and it wasn't malicious. It was all to bring the company to a better place to get through that constraint that you saw there. So in managing you, um, you know, you, you, probably the, be blunt, you were a pain in the ass. <laughs> I totally know it. Uh, so I'd like to have you just talk about being a maverick and some of the things that you think I did well in managing you that enabled you to be so successful, but maybe some things that I could have done better. I think the best thing that you did is you kind of would really at times tell us exactly what you're trying to accomplish. You communicated the challenge very well. Like I want to do this or, or these are our core problems. And then I would go after what problems you would present in any way I could. I also think though that part of my job was I protected you against the people who would have shut you down. Totally agree with that. But at the same time, I made sure you, I put guardrails. You used that word before. I put guardrails in place so you didn't totally go off the reservation. Yep. And there was times I hit them. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And bounced over back on the other yep. side. But I think 
mavericks are, if you want to grow, it's important to identify who the mavericks are in your company and think about the relationship you or the people who are in charge of directly managing them, how they, how they think about that. But you also invested a lot of time, effort, training classes. I mean, so many leadership programs I went to. I mean, I, I grew my skills a lot from being there. Mm-hmm. So you have graduated in a sense. As of a month ago, you bought a small sheet metal company. Congratulations. Thank you. Tell me about the process of buying a company because that wasn't the first company you looked at. No. So for the past two and a half years, I I probably looked at 50 companies. I wanted to stay in my local area. They're all sheet metal companies. And I learned a lot through the exercise. Nick Mercier, who I worked for for Macy Industries, really taught me a lot. He um, did the books with me many a times. He gave me the, the kind of the financials behind it. But it's very simple. Like most companies I went up to, I was like, well, what do you think your company's worth? They don't know. They couldn't even put a number on it. And you can whip out your calculator in about two minutes. I was getting to what their value was three months after they would come back to their account and say, yeah, you were there. Like, I mean, it's very simple math. You take most sheet metal companies should make about 20% EBITDA. If you're not doing very well, it's 15. If you're doing really well, maybe it's 26 or 30. I haven't seen any 26 or 30s come trying to buy a shop. Mm-hmm. So most of the shops are under 5 million. And you would just take, if they do, you know, 2 million times 0.15 and multiply by that, by that, by three. So three times cash flow. And then you would do plus or minus a percentage from there. If they have a lot of good equipment, if they don't, if they own the building, that's different. Does the real estate come with it? Mm-hmm. But just that simple math in about two minutes, I could get to a number to start the conversation. Whereas, you know, the first 10 I looked at, I couldn't even start the conversation because it was like, Oh, how much is it? Oh, I don't know. I'll get back to you. I mean, month, weeks would go by without an answer. So I had to learn how to, kind of estimate the value for them and then get the conversation started. Mm-hmm. And so, so what you want to look for in buying a business, what I've learned for, which was on my wish list, is you want an absentee owner. You don't want an owner in the middle of everything who programs and runs and manages because that you're not buying you're buying him at that point. And he's not coming with you after you buy the deal. Like he's going off into the sunset. There's some deals where maybe he'll work there for a year or two, but that year is going to go by very fast. How many of the businesses you looked at had an absentee owner in retrospect? Probably like three. Like they're very hard to find. They're like the unicorn. So someone who is still an active owner, but thinking of selling their business, how do they make themselves appear as an absentee owner to someone. Honestly, like you could, this is like selling a house. Like there's techniques you can do to make your business astronomically more valuable without really changing a lot. But you do have to empower other people to do the work for you and let go of some of those quotes that you might lose 2% on because the value of you having someone else doing that and giving them an opportunity to do that when you sell the place because you want them to still have a job Mm -hmm. is huge and it goes right to your pocket but 
it, it, it's it, easier it, said than done because the personalities of someone who owns a sheet metal shop is they like sheet metal. They are a manufacturer. They're not a business person. They're not a finance person. Right. And I, you know, I am a, a part owner and I love it. Like I just left from there. Five machines are running all at once. That's like music to my ears. Like I want to go back there and just listen to that. Like it's amazing to me and the energy that happens when everything's working the right way. I can see why someone doesn't want to give that up really. I remember going out and when I was a salesperson selling to job shops before I owned Rapid, being out on the floor and I could hear a punch press pounding away. And the owner said to me, do you hear that, Jay? It's like, yeah. He goes, that's the sound of money. Well, your, your experience is really unique. And now that I'm at the reset or the start of this, I, I always think back to the beginning ages and Jay came in with sales. He could sell anything. Like he's like, I can sell this thing. I know it. So you brought in knowing how to call customers the right way and how to set up the front end the right way. But you didn't know anything about sheet metal. You every job you would come by and go out to the shop floor and get some hours and then put the J magic on it, go sell it. And you were doing a lot of the quotes. Like that's much different than the normal person who buys a sheet right. metal shop. They buy it because they think that, I'm going to make a lot of money just managing the right way and cutting costs. Whereas you're bringing, I'm going to grow the crap out of this thing through sales and sell it. And then you can get but better equipment. But there still was a point for me where I had to make a conscious decision to let go of the quoting. And yeah, the you estimating. taught me how to quote. That was painful. <laughs> it was. Because it was. I could never do it right. I mean, Honestly, because it was your right. baby, there's right. not. I could get to the same number as you, but it, it wouldn't matter. I didn't get it to the. But at a, to the way but at a certain it. point, though, I gave it up. I didn't give it up right. entirely, but I. You let I, go gradually. I, I let go gradually, and I said, "I'd rather not see how the sausage is made. I'm just going to turn my head, and as long as the customers are ordering, at prices that we're making money on, then got to let Steve and, and the other But for, folks. for years, we didn't have these magic metrics. You would just look at the end of the month and go, we made money. You didn't know on what job we made money right. on or, or any of that stuff. Right. So now that you, what, how did you come up with the name approved sheet metal? If you know me, you just know that. I say approved like 40 million times a day. I just love it. And it's a positive word and you want to be on their approved list. And we approve this quote. It just fits and it's good for marketing. I just, yep. I love it. I love everything about it. Okay. So you, you came in and in the first month, what have you done? How have you changed the business? So I didn't change it that much yet through being at rapid. I saw a lot of new people come in, these experts, these professionals, some people even relocated to come work at rapid. Like that blew my mind. I could never do that, mm -hmm. but they would come in and on day two, they would put in all their things that worked in a production shop and it would just frustrate people for months. And that hurt their credibility for like six or eight months. Some people it took for them to regain that. Mm -hmm. So I definitely don't want to do that to my crew. Um, we bought a business that was making money. So more status quo. I went in there. I learned how to do the whole front end setting up QuickBooks took a long time. I know how to do the financials. Now I can program apart from the beginning to the end, learning all the equipment, making upgrades on things that I want, but 
I'm just going back to what's my constraint? What's the weakest link in all of this? And right now everything's set up. So now I'm just building up my customer list and getting in new jobs. Our shop is very strong. Like we have a shop that was built years ago. Like it's been in that building for 30 years and the layout they did is like so much better than the other shops I've been in. Like it has nice uh, flow. Like remember when we were going to do all those spaghetti maps? Like our shop is a mess compared to this. Like the, the work just travels like it's supposed to all the way down the lines. People have procedures in place. It's just really awesome. So you said you haven't changed a lot. Nope. What, if anything, did you tell yourself, I'm deliberately not going to change in the first 30, 60, 90 days? So I may try to change one thing or scare everyone for the past two weeks. And that's <laughs> not easy to do because I have a ton of ideas and I like to move really fast. Right. But I gained a lot of respect by doing that. We actually went and looked at everyone's skill set and we had to let go a couple people that were overpaid, but the people that were underpaid, we we rewarded. Not everyone got a raise, but it was done more on what they can do versus who they knew. Why did you do that in the first month? Because it was so unfair, I think. And it wasn't like... So it was that obvious? Yeah. And do you think everyone in the company sort of knew that? Yes. Okay. You know, when you fire someone, they're like, oh my God, we're waiting for that to happen. That's pretty much what happened. What are some of the low hanging fruits that you see available to you that maybe in the first six or 12 months, things that you can execute on that, you know, will pay dividends, but aren't quite right to implement yet. So their technology and the way that they laser and punch things was okay but i've really already stepped it up we're starting to do more punch the lasers which i love like Mm -hmm. we all cheered when we first did that because i mean when you can open that capabilities up to Mm -hmm. punch all the holes and then go laser the outside we're shaving like minutes off these old programs and the quality is great because you're getting crisp um outlines without nibbling a lot of you take out a lot of deburring the coolest thing i've already done is i've quoted off a 2000 part quote and I have it formed up in the punch press and dropping out of the chute complete. Like it was awesome. So, I mean, this thing just runs, comes out. Yes, we have to divert it a little bit. If we had that tumbler, it would be amazing. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's like such a light touch versus in the press break every single hit. Right. And most shops have turrets and all this technology. I don't know if they don't use it or not, but we didn't use that much stuff at Rapid. I think we could have by just knowing the capabilities. of And the guys at Wilson Tool are amazing. Like, Well, I think the when you're making the same part over and over again and in the higher quantities, you can take time to evaluate yes. the process and put in fixed tooling that will save you a bunch of time, but it takes more upfront costs, more, more programming. But, but I'm able to go through most of their long running jobs. We're, we're changing the hover heights. We're tuning in jobs that we they've run for years and shaving minutes off them. It's just so satisfying to be able to do that. So what though, as from a software perspective, just from your background, what do you see again, that's six to 12 months, just low hanging fruit, things that you are just waiting to jump on, but you know, they're not quite ready for it yet. So the first things I'll probably do is something where we're, we're not measuring the employees, but acknowledging how much work they've done, how many jobs they completed, estimated hours completed, and just making sure that they're aware that 
I'm watching how much they produce. And if they produce a lot, I'm more grateful. So metrics sounds yep. like, okay. How are you thinking about culture? What are you doing to have the approved sheet metal well, besides the name, that's, I guess, a, a big start. Yeah. How, how is it becoming Steve's company and reflecting you and your values? So through the communication, through, you know, just seeing people every morning, it, it's become a really tight group. Everyone has a say of what they want to do, communicate. If they have suggestions, we put these T-shirts out. Everyone loves the T-shirts. You know, the whole crew loves the name, the logo. We put up flags in the shop for, I mean... We clean the shop for. I mean, the shops never look cleaner as well. How but taking did... time to clean is very powerful because people don't want to do it. But afterwards, they keep it up and they like it. And it's more enjoyable to come in and work. We painted shop lines on the floor. Like everyone mm -hmm. was blown away by just like the differences that this stuff makes. And you come to work every day in this atmosphere. Like you want it to be organized. And So again, you've only, a, it's been a month. I know. Yeah, it's it, been right, a but lot. No, but this is important. So if there's a shop out there that is not as clean as it could be, obviously you're still making parts, shipping parts in this month. Cleaning wasn't a full-time activity, right. but it sounds like you are dramatically better. It can be done. It should be done. Yep. And, and lighting's the next big expense that we're going to pocket out mm -hmm. and, and do as well. Cause it's very important. So how is the lighting not adequate now? Currently, you know, there's missing fixtures and bad light bulbs. We're, we're actually going to put in LED lighting and mm -hmm. just really make it pop. Like, and that's why it should be a nice clean floor with bright lights, especially when you're working with sheet metal to measure everything. And mm -hmm. So these are really basic things. Yeah. And they don't cost a lot of money. No, they really don't. How about, well, before you started having these meetings, did they tell you how often they would have meetings or when the last time they had a meeting was? So the biggest complaint was they, they would fall upon deaf ears. They say that we've told them that like half the things that they've, they've said to me once, like well, we've been telling them for years, like, great, tell me once, let's get on it. You know, and, and really just listening and, you know, having, listening and letting them tell me what things we should work on. first. This is really important. You are better not you are better off not asking something if you're not going to act on it. Oh my God. Yes. And don't implement <laughs> something that you do for like a week and then stop. Like I'm very cognizant about what I'm agreeing to and what I'm implementing. Cause through my career, I've had a lot of ideas. And if you try and do some of these and then fizzle out like that hurts your hurts everything for a long time. Yeah, your credibility yes. gets shot for sure. And one of the things that, you've done is on the front end for quoting and estimating you've brought on paperless parts. Yep. Why use a off the shelf tool like paperless parts for quoting and estimating rather than just building something yourself because you certainly have the skill set. It's just, that's not my major constraint right now. So it's not the weakest link. I'd rather put my attention towards the weakest link. And how are you implementing paperless parts for quoting and estimating? So implementation is really easy. It didn't take very long and just works. And what are you, 
what are you seeing that makes it more efficient or easier for your team to use? For us, you know, we could quote off a spreadsheet, but you don't kind of get that beautiful quote that goes out. And I think it's all like, just like you always taught me, your book cover on your shop. It makes your, your shop look very nice. You're just the presentation of it and the format. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, half the buyers don't see your shop. They don't come in for a visit. What they see is your paperwork and your quotes. And that's what they're judging, and, you know, and, what the inside and, of your shop point, is. And your website. Yeah. Yeah. My website's cool. Yes. You get a good website. Matt Sardillo. All right. Well, what else you got? Everything. <laughs> Everything. No, that's, that's, I mean, mentors. I mean, you've been a huge mentor of mine, Tom Persh and Nick Mercier as well. He's taught me a lot in a very short amount of time. Mm-hmm. So I've always been in precision sheet metal. I went up to miscellaneous metals. Like, do you even know what miscellaneous metals is? No. It's fascinating. Like these guys build hot rods and stuff when they go home, like, you don't need CAD up there. Like you can hand sketch something and they can, they just know how to unfold and go to the corner shear and make stuff, scribe lines. And hmm. it's just true fabrication on like steroids. Like right. there, we made so many things so fast that they would be, they would be halfway done the project before I could probably get the, the 3d CAD model done huh. just by through conversation. And, and what they do is, is they're uh, complete problem solvers. Like, someone wanted a table that a pneumatic table that would rise up and down and, you know, mm-hmm. do a lift and hold a certain amount of pounds. And these guys just can pull this out of nowhere and, and within two weeks, deliver it, not just design it. Mm-hmm. They use pneumatics and it, it was a really fun, fun time for me. Yeah. And I remember when you built your motorcycle from scratch. Yep. So that's always be bugging you to put the helmet on. Never <laughs> would, but and my big truck and my Jeep, lots of toys. No, I I do like building things. Um, Other advice out there is the Colby scores. They're amazing. Um, It really makes you think that not everyone thinks like you. And when you understand that, you can relate to people better. You can communicate your problem better and your needs better your goals better because not everyone in the world looks at the same thing as you do so one of the things working with software developers that i always did is i get done talking I'm like okay repeat that back and i would get something totally different back than what i was trying to say and then i could correct what how they interpreted back was that but a standard thing that you did i still do it today like almost everywhere but especially working with software developers when you're done explaining something just go you know, take the five minutes and go, hey, repeat that back to me. How did you interpret what I said? And it's always wrong with software developers. And I'm telling you, it's, it's crazy. I don't know if they overcomplicate things or yeah. what, but th- I think this is a ma- major thing wrong, wrong it with software developers. sounds like it would work with anyone. It does. Huh, that's a great idea. It, it takes a little bit of time, but it's all about, like, even when you're in an interview, you're supposed to be listening more than talking and mm-hmm. just shut up for a minute and <laughs> listen. Listen. Anything else, Steve? Uh, no, I could go on for hours, I bet. This right. is really well, maybe, fun, though. Yeah, great. Maybe we'll do a part two. Oh, boy. All right. Well, you've heard from the maestro himself. Thank you, Steve, for stopping in and chatting with us. Maybe we will do a part two in a year or so and find out how 
approved sheet metal has changed, what's happened in the year since you've uh, owned it. But I always love to connect with you and remember, chat about some of the, the really fun times we had at Rapid. And I hope for the audience, there's some tidbits, some takeaways that you'll be able to implement in your own businesses. Where can people reach you in Approved Sheet Metal? So my email is steve at approvedsheetmetal.com. And we have a great website, approvedsheetmetal.com, or on LinkedIn as well. I like LinkedIn a lot. You like LinkedIn. So do we get to hear the air horn before we uh, go here? So I not only the air horn, but I had the General Lee on my phone. And every day when I was in the machine shop, I would because I was working with a bunch of teenagers back then. And the other thing that I always did, I would actually sit in the cubicles with these guys. Like I was always very close to the work because those are the guys that do have it. Yeah. Do it up against the mic. But it just makes it fun and definitely use that a lot at Rapid. Well, listeners, I leave you with a challenge. How will you give the Maverick in your company more freedom? Or if you don't have a Maverick, ask yourself, why not? Did you chase them away? Always good to self-reflect. Thank you for tuning in, and we really appreciate you taking the time to make us a part of your day. Please keep those comments coming, and please leave us a five-star review on the podcast platform of your choice. And until next time, keep those spindles turning, those lasers cutting, and those air horns sounding. Thanks, Steve. Thank you.